the subject for the evening talk is forgiveness. Perhaps one of the most uh, famous uh, statements in religious history and on the profound subject matter of forgiveness is the one uttered by uh, Jesus in the dying uh, minutes of his life when um, nailed to the cross and he uttered those words forgive them for they know not what they do and this statement by a relatively young man who was crucified for fearlessness for being outspoken for speaking what he saw and understood and in a language which some of us would as it were translate into many statements about the ultimate truth which he spoke of as the law or the father or the truth and many statements too about experience of living on this earth and the duties and the responsibilities and the understanding which is necessary so that we genuinely are able and committed to living a life with awareness and love for one another. And perhaps sometimes in reflecting on his circumstances and also on others who are in a similar plight of facing extraordinary pain and suffering being inflicted or caused by other circumstances around we have wondered what is it in the human capacity and in the depths of the human heart which enables a, a human being, enables their spirit to actually say, forgive them, to actually express and to show a tremendous quality of compassion and heartfulness in the most crying and in the most desperate of circumstances. And not only inspired by the words of Jesus, but also through ages into our contemporary situation. We have heard these words and these statements, and sometimes too have endeavoured in our own small way when hurt by the tribulations of existence, and particularly by others, dead or alive, near or far, to forgive them. And it would seem at times that the capacity to forgive is too great for the human heart. And unfortunately in spiritual life and spiritual practices 
and all that the teachings uh, speak of, there can be in the flow of all of this rather a high degree, I would say, of idealism. An idealism where the language of should and the language of ought to enters somehow into our consciousness. And what happens for us, and I think forgiveness is one of those specific ones, where we hear of the potential and the possibility of the most noble ways of being in this world, which are available to a human being. And we hear of that again and again through teachings, through practices, through some sense, perhaps, some inner sense of potential. And then the hard truths of life sometimes seem to blow away our, our aspirations, the most noble aspirations of all. And I think one of those, specifically among several, is the area of forgiveness. And what we notice times, we might look back over the recent past or earlier past, childhood and so forth, and are able to recall, sometimes with uh, tremendous authority in a way, periods of time in our life where we have been uh, extraordinarily hurt, if not harmed and uh, damaged by the actions or the behavior of another or others. Sometimes that's very specific. It relates to a particular person who is living or has lived on this earth. And sometimes it's uh, less specific, but it's towards the system, the kind of society that we live in, the impact of the world or the environment or a group or an institution or whatever it might be. And in that, the pain that may be caused at the physical level, the suffering which may ensue, can rock a person to the very foundations of their being. And in that, that uh, violation of a human right, that uh, abuse, that desecration of deep things, and sometimes the outflowing of the wounds that come. And a number of you here, as you uh, know from your experience, or from your work, or from, from both, have to, day in and day out, deal and work and face people whose lives, their inner lives, if not their physical lives as well, have been brutalized by the world in which we live. And in and amidst all of this, we'll talk in spiritual life, in religious life, of forgiveness. And it seems a, a tremendous uh, act, a tremendous contrast, an unbelievable, unimaginable degree of contrast between how one is feeling, the responses that one is having, and then, in all of that, as it were, being called upon and if not inspired by texts and, and selfless actions, to have the capacity to forgive.
And I sometimes wonder whether <coughs> in our idealism and in our aspirations <coughs> we might in fact be asking too much of ourselves, too much of each other, when we elevate forgiveness into all and every area of life. <coughs> um, during the course of this week, there have been two um, uh, uh, events which have been rather pro prominent uh, in the media. Uh, one, one of those was the uh, uh, death of uh, Richard Nixon uh, several days ago, and the, the second were and are the elections which are taking place in uh, South Africa. And bo both of those, in a way, I think have a, for some of us anyway, <coughs> have a, rela <coughs> pardon me, a relationship <coughs> to forgiveness. And taking the former for the moment, uh, uh, the life and the death and the actions of uh, Richard Nixon, that I, for myself, having uh, opportunity to read the newspapers last uh, two or three days, have been, I must say here, and perhaps it's been reflected elsewhere as well, somewhat um, shocked um, by the kind of attention that has been given and the various descriptions that have been uh, given and almost a feeling at times in reading some of the uh, reports there as though like the uh, um, communists are well known for a kind sometimes a sense of history being rewritten in a way which the, the view that some of us have and the view which has occurred in the space of uh, a couple of uh, decades, somehow in the passage of time has been changed. And what I'm referring to in this case, during the 1970s when I was um, a Buddhist monk, we would get in the monastery in South Thailand regular reports from our brothers, um, monks and nuns in Kampuchea in, that is Cambodia, the neighboring uh, country. And during this uh, uh, period of time, the Nixon and uh, Kissinger, as many of you will know, ordered the widespread saturation bombing of Cambodia. This was the spark and that precipitated the terrible, what could only be described as a holocaust in Cambodia in which uh, more than a third of the population of Cambodia uh, died. As monks, at that time, I was staying with Maha Goshananda, who a number of you know here, who is now the Supreme Patriarch of uh, that country. He's a very dear friend of mine. We spent three years in the same uh, monastery uh, to get together. And I remember as vividly as I remember anything in this life how on a number of occasions he in the monastery would take my hand and he said, please, please send Metta to the, the, my country. He said, I always remember the line, he said, 
the rivers are filled with blood. And somehow that terrible tragedy of a country which was peace-loving, which was neutral, which made no contribution whatsoever to the American war against the people in Vietnam, yet suffered this terrible bombing and all the consequences that came of it. And somehow or other, it's one of those situations where it either gets overlooked or becomes a kind of a PS, a footnote in the history of the Nixon-Kissinger era. And also, with all of that, I wonder whether one could put that into the language of forgiveness. I wonder whether one could put it into that language at all. And we'll, one feels sorry for the, the death and the loss of uh, a human being on this earth, and I include Richard Nixon in this. One feels, one feels love and, and sympathy and empathy for the family and all the personal loss that goes with it. But there's also something in the spiritual life, I would say, in terms of accountability be accountable for our actions, to be accountable for the immense responsibilities that certain people have uh, in this world. And if that's all kind of um, wiped over, glossed, glossed over in the name of forgiveness, in the name of kindness, I think we do a disservice to each and every person and we do a disservice to truth and to justice. So therefore I say that when in speaking of forgiveness and all that is implied with forgiveness, it need, I do think it needs to be understood very carefully in relationship to events and in relationship to the circumstances of life. And I'm sp speaking here specifically of the, the terrible tragedy of Kampuchea. Uh, Maha uh, Goshananda, who um, in August time he was uh, spent a day at the Barry Study Center uh, next door. And he has led two peace marches from the border of um, Kampuchea to the capital, Phnom Penh, going through areas which are uh, high risk, to say the least. And in one place where there were uh, several hundred people marching with him that they were staying in a Dharma hall in one of the villages much like this kind of uh, hall which are throughout the, the Buddhist world and somebody presumably from the Khmer Rouge but somebody threw in in the night while they were sleeping there an hand grenade into that hall and miraculously that hand grenade didn't go off one can imagine the, the, the terror and the horror of, of such a situation. And in talking with Mahagosananda, I said to him, with your walks, that, that these Dharma Yatra, these peace walks, peace pilgrimages that you're doing, I, I said to him, if you continue like this, Goshananda, you're going to end up as a candidate for the Nobel Prize. And sure enough, he's been nominated. And uh, this year, he 
and um, and also Sulak Sivaraksha, who another uh, fellow member, if I may say, uh, with myself and the other friends of the International Board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Um, as Sulak also has been nominated for the second time for for this prize, <coughs> and my conversations with them and uh, others, some people, some human beings have this extraordinary capacity for, for forgiveness. But I say, and I say again, I don't think one has to expect of oneself or other human beings to always, in all circumstances, to have the capacity to forgive. I do think that it can be asking too much of the heart. And I think one must be as deeply and as carefully uh, honest with oneself uh, as possible. Unfortunately, what can happen that it's as though at times there's no middle way here. And what I mean by that is that there's no, that is no support nor justification and none whatsoever in our life to give support to rage, to give support to revenge, to getting one's own back, to being so blinded with uh, re reactivity, because surely already in this world there is enough aggression, enough violence, enough rage, enough revenge, enough hatred all already. And to want to add to that in all sorts of names and, and causes is to very much perpetuate the thing which one is reacting against already. And the, the Buddha, in his magnificent wisdom and uh, insight into the, the human heart, has spoken of these things with much uh, 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 sensitivity. And one of the things which he has pointed out uh, again and again, he has spoken of what is called the uh, Brahma Viharas. That means it's an abiding in life in a divine way. Brahma means divine or godly way, holy way. And um, Vihara um, means abiding, to abide in a holy way, in a, in a godly way. And what he has done, which is rather unusual in terms of spiritual teachings, but I think is a reflection of the profound insights into the human heart, is he said that there are four elements of this abiding from the heart and has spoken equally of each one of them. The first three are clear and apparent and the fourth one, in fact, I would say is quite indispensable and gives support to uh, what I'm speaking about this evening. The first one is metta. When you arrive here at uh, IMS, one of the first things that some of you may have noticed right above the door is it says metta. And metta um, means, the meaning of metta is deep friendship, a very deep friendship towards life, to our friends, to strangers, to people that we, we meet, and in that quality of friendship, it's a friendship where there is neither, not carrying notions of conceit, 
and sometimes our conceit obscures our friendship. In other words, friendship can, can uh, the loss or the deterioration of friendship can show itself through notions of superiority, which affects friendship in life, inferiority, which affects friendship in life in another way, and sometimes notion of equality as well. I am equal to you, I am as good as you, or, or whatever. These I, the sense of I and the ego, can enter into friendship and actually corrupt friendship through the ego having some other needs working at the same time. So the Buddha himself, in speaking of himself, frequently referred to himself as a Kalyana Mitra. And this, the term Kalyana Mitra is one who is a friend, a good friend to other people. And that was the quality, one senses and feels this throughout the text, uh, was the, the, the quality of the relationship. It was a relationship where people together, in looking into together, could and did feel and experience friendship as the, a basis and as a foundation for teachings, for realization. And I, I would say equally in reading uh, the New uh, Testament, particularly Matthew, Mark and, and uh, Luke, that in the Gospels there, one has the same sense of Jesus in his relationship to his uh, friends, both uh, women and men. It's one of an actual deep friendship with each other. And that deep friendship stood them well and stood them steady through the most trying, if not terrifying, of circumstances. The second element of the divine, of a divine life, a, a noble way of being, is one of compassion. And what distinguishes the friendship from compassion, though they, of course, are very, very close, deep friendship or loving-kindness or, or love, what distinguishes is that in the action of compa that compassion carries with it friendship, but it has a very specific way and purpose in life. It is to relieve suffering. Therefore, a human being who's living life and aware of life and knows life, knows life, that the manifestation of that is expressing itself as deep friendship to life, as compassion in life, because one seeing the truth of life. And that must be seen in all claims of knowing life when it's put into the language of scientific objectivity. In a way, it's a, a marginalizing of life. It's making a metaphysic of life. It's generating life in terms of figures and numbers and uh, a degree which is disassociated from a way of life to see life, to know life, for a human being, it shows in its manifestations, and one of them is friendship and another is compassion because therein it's connected to the truth of life, non-theoretical. So our theories and our knowledge and all that we need to know, and we, as I said earlier, we need to know a great deal there, but that knowing to harmonize with experiencing and the 
and the knowing and the experience becomes an action. In that, before I speak for a moment or two about the other two divine abidings, the second area of the week which has been a major focus, and that of, and that of course is uh, South Africa. And I think quite often in our life, certain circumstances that are going on around us in the world can impact upon us and, and can touch us deeply and bring out uh, responses and help us to question ourselves, who we are, and our relationship to events. And I was speaking on the phone with uh, Gavin uh, Harrison, who is South African, who has spent uh, some recent months in, in South Africa. And I was commenting to him uh, about an interview with Nelson Mandela. And in one of his uh, public rallies uh, within the last few weeks, he was speaking and there was a, a definite degree of anger and aggression and looking for... Uh, 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 revenge because of the, some of the tragic bloodletting that has taken place between various uh, communities there, white and black, black and black, and so forth. And he said to the, the people in a, in a very clear and unmistakable way, he said, you are angry. But he said, have you stopped for a moment or two and thought about myself? I spent 27 years incarcerated in a prison because of apartheid, because of this government, because of the nationalist national party, because of the system there. Have you thought what it must feel like for me to have spent that amount of time in such a situation? And yet, I'm working with these people. And I've been working with them day in and day out since I got out of this prison. I said to Gavin on the phone, I'm uh, uh, quoting that which I've just quoted to you, and he said he had read, uh, there was an interview with um, Mandela on the television, and the reporter put to him the same question which many of us must have had the thought of as, as well. You spent all of this time in jail, imprisoned, and all the brutality of it. You've witnessed the, all that's happened to your um, people through apartheid. And he said, how is it that you're not angry with them? You're not out to, ch to change the system in a way that you can to get your own back, for you and your people. And his response was, and I think it's a gesture, a statement of the humanity of the man. He said, ultimately, we are a forgiving people. So, so it, the circumstances which uh, arise and the long and tortured history of colonialism and the the English and the Dutch being a, a major contributor to all the tragedy of, 
that has gone on in uh, South Africa through the colonial period and subsequently through trade, etc., etc. And yet, amidst all of that, human being can emerge out of that. We are a forgiving people, and we can, and we therefore we can work with this situation and work with these people. And I think that is a tremendous testimony to uh, a wisdom and a love and, a, and an understanding. And in the, even in, I would say, still, however, even in the face of such tremendous expressions of the human spirit as expressed by Jesus, as expressed by Mandela and uh, others of all manner and, and backgrounds, nevertheless, it is still not possible in all situations. And therefore, I plead that we are honest and clear with ourselves. In looking at the, the final two, and this is where the, the wisdom of the, the Buddha, uh, I feel, comes here, he speaks of deep friendship, metta, he speaks of karuna, compassion, he speaks of the third, spiritual joy, and all that we, we've heard this afternoon and now we go around here together of, of, of gratitude and appreciation. All of that is in the word mudita, particularly gratitude. And the many ways and manifestations that uh, shows itself for all sorts of things that uh, have occurred here and occurred in one's life which make it possible for you and I to be here. Then the Buddha speaks of the fourth one, and the word in the Pali is upeka, upeka. And this word usually gets translated as equanimity. But in a, in a deeper sense, and since the others are so deep, well, this is therefore as deep, it's that depth of steadiness in the heart, very deep steadiness in the heart, in the face of circumstances. And when a human being is, is steady in the face of circumstances, very, very deep in some of the incredible uh, and, uh, challenging circumstances that we face through knowledge, through pain, through circumstances, teachings are saying, let us work on them, cultivate and find ways within our being to be steady in the face of. And I think that steadiness in, in the face of is, in some situations, the wise and skillful and appropriate response to very difficult circumstances. And if we can find that and touch that stead, steadfastness, I don't think we have to take it a step further and say, I should be forgiving. I should be able to forgive. A number of, of you over these days said, I, you know, I should be able to show more kindness. Or I, I should be able to um, show more compassion to what he, she, they have done to me or to us or to those people that I love and care for deeply. And I think the, the message of Upeka, the message of this depth of steadiness, is in a way saying that steadiness is equal in its depth and in its profundity as compassion is, as forgiveness is, 
as kindness is and as the depth of joy. And if we can sense, sense that, I think then there is a potential and the foundation for a human being to then look back, and what I've got in mind here, is to look back over past hurts which have been terribly, terribly painful. And one of the difficulties that can, can arise is, and I was speaking in other ways about this the other evening, when there is the arising of memory, you remember something which somebody has done to you. In the arising of memory, the memory doesn't arise, as it were, objectively. It doesn't arise purely and cleanly and without any distortion or effect. It arises with consciousness. It arises with feeling. It arises with thought. It arises with certain kinds of perceptions. And they're all in there together. So when we're talking about our past, and sometimes it's very necessary to do, it's very necessary to look at painful past uh, influences, we also must be clear as possibly we can that we're actually talking about our present as well. Because our, well, who and what we are like in our present moment gives shape and significance to how we refer to the past. And many times, you and I and others, we look at the past in one way, the same past, in one day, and all manner of things can be going on, and we can look at the same past the next day, and the actual relationship has changed dramatically. Therefore, the past can't be independently of how you and I are feeling and being and experiencing the present. So past and present are not two separate events from each other. They actually hold each other together. And in that recognition that the both are holding each other, other together, then it's vital that there is upekā. It's vital that there are ways and practices to know and find and touch places of steadiness inside. Because it's the steadiness born of the steadiness of the living present that can enable us to look to the past and look at it without rage, hatred, disappointment, thoughts of revenge, and all the tragedy that can occur from past into present. So I say, therefore, the here and now, in relationship to the past, and the relationship to the here and now, to the immediate moment, matters as much as the past and its influence. And it's not surprising sometimes people will say, I can't be steady in the present. I can't find calmness in the present. I can't find equanimity in the, in the present. And the reason that I can't find it is because my past is so tortured, it's so painful, I can't get any rest there. And it's a very understandable and perhaps all too frequent response which, which occurs. And that's where we need kindness, where we need support, where we need friendship, where we need the, 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 the receiving and the trust 
of each other, of the nature of circumstances where we need skill. And so in that skillfulness, the person can begin to sense the immediacy of the present, find the steadiness there which enables her, which enables him to look to the past and to look at it in a way which is not so damaging and distracting on the, on the present. The element of upekā, of equanimity, also has another very important part to, to play in a, a deep and heartfelt life. That when speaking of it in the face of circumstances which arise, quite often, of course, for us, imagine it in relationship to um, pain and difficulty. And for some human beings, in, in context of the past, we refer through habit and conditioning too much to pain, too much to the difficult times, too much to the hard times. And even if it seems like a, 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 there have been long periods of painful disorientation towards life, still in the miracle of life, for probably, I'm sure, for all of us, there have been countless moments where life has shown its spark, where life has shown its beauty, where its wonder, where there has been humour and lightness and good spirits and warmth and openness and contact. And if there is a tendency in one's life that the moment one goes to the past, near past or distant past, and one starts focusing in a negative way as a habit pattern, it's a sure sign there is a lack of uh, equanimity or steadiness in the face of circumstances. In other words, the pattern is colouring the past. And therefore, it's not at all unusual when it's colouring the past that a person, say, who's been in a relationship with somebody for years and in the reaction that comes, the mind looks to the past and said, well, I never loved him anyway. Or, he's always treated me terrible. Or, uh, she and I never got on together. Or, uh, they've always been like this. And my family were absolutely terrible to me, to us, or whatever. And it's a saying frequently very little in so far as the generalization of viewpoint towards the past is as great a problem as any circumstances that occurred in the past. The way of relating to looking at, I would say, matters as much as what one is looking at because the subject can't be apart from the memory. So when we speak of equanimity of life and speak with uh, uh, steadiness of life, it's important, both past, present and future, what we are imposing upon it. 
What is the imposition on it? What are we bringing to what we see? And are we looking at life through coloured glasses? Steadiness, equanimity, working with others, working with oneself, the support, the, the protected environment, as we were speaking about earlier, all of that contributes to that, so that we have a sense, as much as humanly possible, I'm endeavouring to bring a clarity to the situation. I'm not, bringing, not looking at it through coloured glasses. Otherwise, <coughs> when are we going to be free? When are we going to be free until we understand the interrelationship of subject and object, past and present, present and future, and the significance of the present in the way that we perceive, in very valuable ways, looking at yesterday and looking at tomorrow. How we look is as significant, and some of us would say, more significant than the events of yesterday or what tomorrow might bring. And I would say that in all of that, there is a, a genuine wisdom there. And that, that wisdom is lovely because it's genuinely liberating and, it, and it's freeing for a human being. And it's freeing, and in one of the lovely ways of, uh, of freeing, it's freeing ourselves from a romantic idealism that I should be holy, I should be saintly. I should be, what's another favourite? I should be mindful um, every moment of the day. Um, I should always be loving and compassionate. And I should wake up every morning feeling full of spiritual joy. <laughs> and, um, and nothing should go wrong with my relationships. And all of that can get internalised. And it gets internalised if the ideals and the images and the aspirations get confused with each other and somewhere in all of that confusion we have lost this sense of upekka, this equanimity in life and an appreciation for that so that we're not demanding of ourselves too much. We're not setting up models of, of how we think we ought to be in various circumstances and we aren't afraid to express our voice and to, and to, to criticize and to say no and, and to disagree with what, this, what the media says about Richard um, Nixon and to hear the voice of Nelson Mandela and to see and be touched by the tremendous things that women and men are uh, doing uh, on this earth, to be inspired by them, but not in a way that that inspiration for us becomes some kind of judgment upon ourselves. And when it becomes a judgment on ourselves, the I arises and one says, well, I'm not in that league, and all the inferiority projection starts to take place because the steadiness of equanimity has been neglected somewhere. So I say that equanimity is significant in human life 
and in uh, global life as uh, love and compassion and spiritual joy. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live a liberated life. Just have two or three quiet minutes together, please.